How are you guys? You all good? Have you enjoyed the series so far with all the different speakers and that? I trust it's been helpful. It has been recorded and on GC Conversations podcast if you want to go back and listen to stuff. Um, yeah, it's been, I, think, I think it's been amazing. I've loved preparing for it and I've loved listening to the different speakers as they have they've come forward and done their bit. So just tonight, we are going to be doing, I said LGBTQ, the problem is that is such a massive subject on its own. So I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm purely gonna look at the homosexuality side of it, not the transgender and all the other letters that are part of that phrase. So uh, just so that it kind of brings it back down to something that we can deal with and work through. Um, obviously, these sorts of subjects are very, very sensitive as um, as you can understand, it can come across, it can, if depending on how we do these things, it can be very condemning for people who are homosexual. And even for those that are not practicing homosexuals but are struggling with same-sex attraction and maybe even married, these can be very difficult things to process. And there is a difference, just I'll start off with that, there is a difference between somebody that is homosexual and somebody that is same-sex attracted following Jesus. Um, there's, a, there's a subtlety there and there's something, I'm gonna talk about that because um, yeah, I'm just gonna get, I'm gonna get into that. I don't wanna get too ahead of myself. But really these conversations need to be done with gentleness, kindness, and uh, a real sensitivity to the word of God as the highest authority in our lives, but as well as to the people that we are speaking to and engaging with. Um, and so often the, the, it's, it's, it's not just asking what does the Bible say, it's, it's asking what does it mean? And there's all sorts of theological hijinks that happen along the way to come up with kind of different uh, meanings and different interpretations of texts. And I'm gonna kind of allude to some of them. Tonight is gonna be quite scripture heavy up front because we need to get into the scriptures and you need to see the scriptures that talk about these things. So just a warning. Um, we're gonna nerd out a little bit with some scripture. And um, however, whatever theology you come up with, we've gotta remember it's people that are living it. So, so to, to come up with some fanciful hardcore theology but not understand that it's people that have gotta got um, kind of embrace, get this into their hearts, we've gotta be very sensitive around that. And remembering also this, your Bible can be right but your love can be wrong, which means you're wrong. So all of this is a, is a kind of precursor to setting up what we're gonna talk about in terms of what the Bible talks about with um, homosexuality, and really, I suppose, how to think about it as a Christian. So, um, to start with, to start with, what we've said previously, we looked at Genesis, and the, the story behind Genesis, and, uh, and kind of the, 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 the story that it begins in Genesis and follows all the way through uh, the creation event. Very important, we're gonna look at that now as well. But all these things, marriage, marriage is a big thing. And one of the big questions around the, the homosexuality debate is what is a marriage? What is Christian marriage? Which is what we're gonna get into tonight from, from Genesis chapter uh, two. Um, these are all things, our sexuality is steeped in Genesis chapter two. Uh, what is marriage is in Genesis chapter two. So we're gonna, we're gonna go there first and then we're gonna look at all the text going on there kind of to lesser and greater degrees depending on the, the size of the text, the, the kind of weight of the text. I just wanna say this is difficult for some people to hear. Did I say that already? It is difficult for some people to hear, but we have to hear what the Bible says. So this talk comes without any judgment. Remember homosexual sin is not the unforgivable sin and it is not the only sin. In all the lists you'll see over and over again, it's listed amongst green, agreed, idolatry, um, sex before marriage. It's all part of the same, it's all sin. And so what we've gotta do is we've gotta remember it's that kind of attitude that we approach 
this subject with tonight. So, let's get to Genesis. In Genesis chapter one, humanity is created in God's image and tasked with ruling the earth and all its creatures. We read that. Adam can't do this on, a, on his own, so Eve is, is like him. Remember I said it's a suitable helper. It's, it's like him, but different to him. She is like him in the right way, made of the same stuff, made of the same bones and flesh. But unlike him, in a different way, she's woman rather than man. She's ma female rather than male. She's a different example of the same kind of thing as him. So all the animals are different to him, but she's like him, but different to him. She's of the same species, same, same homo sapien, same kind of thing as him, and shares his nature, shares his vocation, and shares his very life. Adam and Eve. And it's this complementarity, this sense of one of Adam, uh, Eve fulfilling what is lacking in Adam and Adam fulfilling what is lacking in Eve that leads to this unbelievable unity between them where they eventually come together in sexual union. Genesis chapter two says, this is why, for this reason, the NIV says, a man leaves his father, father and mother and is united to his wife and they become one flesh. This is why, that's why, for this reason. What reason? Because they were made, created, because they had a prophetic purpose and because they were created male and female. Because they were created male and female. Like but different. A man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and they'll become one flesh. They'll have sex. Remember I said, do it in that order. Do it in that order. Leave, cleave, be united, or be, be united. The old King James is cleave, leave and cleave, and then have sex. And it says they were naked without shame. The purpose of sex here is to express and deepen the unity between them, the oneness between them. Remember Eve was taken out of Adam and God puts them back in together, back together in sexual union under the covenant of marriage, under the commitment of marriage. And so in a sense he puts them back together again, but this time in diversity, reflecting the Godhead, Father, Son and Holy Spirit. One, but different. This is the story of Genesis chapter one. The two becoming one. The two di diverse beings becoming one. Two like but different beings becoming one. Jesus teaches that it's good. It's God who joins people together. And he says this in Matthew 19. He says, what God has put together, let man not separate. So what happens is in that marriage, God puts this husband and wife together. And he says, don't separate that. Let man not separate what I've put together. God produces, himself produces this incredible oneness. Under the cup, Tim and Tess are getting married this afternoon, Russell, Tim and Tess Russell. Today, God puts them together into a unity, into a oneness, where they become one emotionally, spiritually, physically, psychologically, they become one. God puts them together. It's what God does, not what man does. We say our vows, but in the moment of that commitment to each other, God does a work in putting husband and wife together. That's why we said, remember, it's very hard to break up when you have sex. Because God puts you together. It's this, it's this um, nature, it's this God uh, kind of, uh, what's the word? It's this God experience that puts you together. And somebody said this, sexuality, I like this, sexuality is like a post-it note. You know what a post-it note is? The first time you use it, it sticks well. But when it is reapplied too many times, it loses, loses its capacity to stick. And that's what sex outside of marriage does. The first time it sticks well, but eventually as we, sex becomes less rational, less relational, more functional, and less satisfying, because it's like a post-it note. That's why we don't have sex, that's why Jesus, that's why God says don't have sex before marriage. You want to give your husband or wife everything of who you are. Your stickiness must be as sticky as it can be. 
not third and fourth hand. And obviously, if you've not done that, there's newness in Christ. Sex is designed to irreversibly bind two people together. Genesis 1 and 2 shows that God is for sex. God is for sex. God is not against sex. But he is, God is for sex, but he is for sex within marriage. And that sex is for marriage. So God is for sex and sex is for marriage. And Jesus reinforces this ethic. It's quite interesting in Matthew chapter 19, verse 3 to 6. It says this, some Pharisees came to Jesus to test him. They asked him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning of the Creator made them male and female. At the beginning, the Creator made them male and female. And he said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let man not separate. That's that text. We created male and female, he says. He says, did you not know? Haven't you read that in the beginning, God created them male and female? Humanity is gendered, friends. We are not just human beings. We are men and women. In today's culture, that is a big statement. We're not, we are gendered. God created men and women, males and females. And it is because we are male and female that we have marriage. That is why, for this reason, a man will leave his mother and father and be united to his wife and they'll be naked. They'll be, become one flesh and they were naked without shame. Which means that marriage is based on gender. Marriage should, would not exist without the sexual differences between men and women in the garden. This is very, very, very important in this whole argument. Eve was created out of Adam, made from his own body. Their one flesh union is therefore something as a reunion joining together what God had originally, what had originally been one perfectly complementing each other, male and female. Marriage is meant to reflect something of God's nature, that oneness of the Godhead, the one flesh union. Let me just say this before I say that. Because marriage is meant to reflect something of God's nature, the oneness, oneness out of diversity seen in the Trinity, the oneness out of diversity seen in the garden with, 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 with Adam and Eve. The oneness that comes when male and female are united in this way. This is why, because of this reason, it's not true of same-sex marriage. Two men and two women cannot become one flesh in the same way as God intended Adam and Eve to become one flesh. They can have a union of sorts, but it's not the kind of union that was uniquely possible in the garden with Adam and Eve. The issue is not the feelings of commitment that two people may have for one another, but rather the kind of union that God gives to a man and a woman when they become physically one together. A big implication of the garden story is marriage is meant to reflect something of God's nature. Secondly, marriage is designed to be the way in which Adam and Eve fulfill the mandate to be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. From this union flows the possibility of new life. Part of the intent of marriage was procreation, which obviously in a same-sex marriage is not possible. 
Marriage also is to reflect the grace between Jesus and the church, it says in Ephesians chapter 5. Marriage is a, a husband and wife, Christ in the church. So when you see husband and wife, you see Christ in the church. Christ is Christ, he's not the church. And the church is the church, the church is not Christ. For the same reason, a same-sex marriage cannot be fulfilling of that purpose. Paul is saying that marriage is about relationship, about the relationship Jesus has with the church. The union between two different yet complementary entities, Jesus and his church. The church is not the same as Christ and Christ is not the same as the church. A man and a man or a woman and a woman cannot reflect the union of Christ and the church. Instead, they only reflect Christ and Christ or the church and church. This is hugely important. This is not even getting into what the scriptures say. We're looking at God's intent. Sex is a good gift that God has given exclusively for marriage so that marriage can fulfill the purposes for which God instituted it. Marriage must be between one man and one woman. One man and one woman. In a culture of polygamy, in a culture of same-sex marriages and partnerships. So where does homosexuality fit into this? What does the Bible say about homosexuality? So we see this, it's very important to get the meta-narrative right, the beginning part of the story right, how God intended it in the garden. Most things are found in Genesis 1 to 3. That's the big, lots of theology in Genesis 1 to 3. But now what I want to do is I want to look at what the Bible says and look at, look at some of the text. This is nerd stuff. And I haven't even touched, I haven't even gone into it deeply. If you want more information, I can give you resources and good books to read on this. And I'll probably put that up so that you can access that. We've also got some PDFs that would be great for you to get hold of and read, which will help you unpack this, especially if you want to do some rigorous um, exegesis on the text. The Bible is, has important and very clear things to say about this subject. So I'm going to give you what the Bible says and what, like I said, it's very hard to hear, but I'm also then going to come at the end and say, well, what do we do about it? Because the problem with the church is it's what we've done about it, not with what we've done about the text, but how we've dealt with people that is the problem. And we've treated homosexuality and these LGBTQ plus questions as the overwhelming sin that's the bigger than all other. In the meantime, it's just part of the package of sin. Not, not the overwhelming big sin that's unforgivable or the big one that you've got to watch out for when they walk into the building. I, I want to say two very important things as I get into this. What the Bible says about homosexuality is not the only thing God wants to say to homosexual people. It's not the whole message of Christianity. Jesus and the gospel is the whole message of Christianity. Secondly, what the Bible says about homosexuality is not the, is not the only thing they need to, it's not the only thing you need to explain. In fact, it's probably not even the first thing you need to explain when you encounter somebody that is homosexual. It's not the main thing you need to explain. It's not the main thing you need to focus on. They need Jesus. Everybody needs Jesus. No matter what sin you're in. Everybody needs Jesus. So the big idea is Jesus. When people get Jesus, then you can start to talk to them about the deeper things of the heart. Is that my phone? It is. Okay, so let's go. Genesis chapter 19. I've kind of toyed whether I should put this in, but I probably should because a lot of people kind of use this as a text. 
Genesis chapter 19 is the, is the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. And obviously the word Sodom, the name of the city has kind of become Sodomites. It's kind of become used with this whole conversation. Listen, look, look at what it says. Genesis chapter 19, verse 3. But he insisted so strongly that they did not go with him and entered his house. He prepared a meal for them, baking bread without yeast, and they ate. Before they had gone to bed, all the men from every part of the city of Sodom, both young and old, surrounded the house. All the men. Remember, when we say city in the Old Testament, don't think of Durban the city. Think of a much smaller thing. A town, a city, a much smaller number of people. Everybody, all the men in that community surrounded this house. They called to Lot, where are the men you came, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out so that we can have sex with them. Lot went outside to meet them and shut the door behind them and said, no, my friends, don't do this wicked thing. Look, I have my two daughters who have never slept with a man. I mean, thinking, dude, how can you do that? You, I mean, I don't know what's the worst here. Let me bring them out to you and you can do with them what you like. But do not do anything to these men for they have come under the protection of my roof. What I didn't put into the story is that these men were angels. These men were angels that came to see the depravity of Sodom. To assess the depravity of Sodom. And so Paul realized these were angels and that's probably why he's even offering him his daughters because God's arrived. The difficulty with this passage is that in latter parts of the Old Testament, it associates Sodom with a whole list of different sins, not just homosexuality, having sex with men. It associates it with oppression, adultery, lying, abetting criminals, arrogance, complacency, indifference to the poor, all those sorts of things. And none of, none of these lists mention homosexual conduct. So there's an argument that actually we read that into this text. That's the argument against using this text to say that it is against homosexuality. However, the Hebrew word yada, to know, can mean just to get to know somebody rather than have sex with somebody. So when it says Adam knew Eve, it meant they slept together. It's a deep, intimate knowing. But it can also mean just get to know somebody in the text. However, it is clear from this text, when you look at the story, the crowd's aggression and Lot's attempt at offering them his daughters, his depraved attempt at offering his daughters, I might add, that these guys are looking for more than just a coffee date with these men. They want to have sex with them. So this is the depravity of Sodom, of all the men in Sodom. Remember that. It's not just a small group, it's the whole town. It's the whole city. In Jude 7, Sodom and Gomorrah and their surrounding towns gave themselves to sexual immorality and perversion. They serve as an example of those who suffer the punishment of eternal life. This is what it says in the New Testament. Indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, the ESV says. So the Old Testament also talks to it and says actually it was unnatural desire and perversion. It was homosexual sin. That was the problem. Some have suggested that um, pursuing these unnatural desires mean, meant it was people wanting to have sex with angels. In the commentaries, they kind of go, go f the, 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 the affirming arguments say that. But these angels appeared as men and the crowd didn't know that they were angels. They were just men. They said, give us those men. Their, their desire was to have sex with the men staying with Lot. And it was not just their violent way. It was not just the violent way of the crowd, but it was also the nature of their cravings as well that was condemned. And Sodom gets sorted by God. 
So straight away you see homosexual behavior, ungodly judgment by God. Let's go to Leviticus 18 and 20. Leviticus 18 and 22, verse 22 says this, Do not have sexual relations with a man as one, um, as one does with a woman. That is detestable or an abomination. There's another, a, a different translations will use. Do not have sexual relations with a man as one does with a woman. That is detestable. In Leviticus 20, verse 13, if a man has sexual relations with a man as one does with a woman, both of them have done what is detestable. They are to be put to death. Their blood will be on their own heads. It is a grave sin in these days to commit the sin of homosexuality. One of the arguments is that when the, when the Bible talks about abomination or it's detestable, it's often linked to idolatry. And some suggest that these verses are not prohibiting homosexual behavior in general, but only the cultic prostitution associated with pagan temples. So there were pagan temples that people would come to and men would have sex with boys. A common practice in Roman times and a common practice in these times. Sex in the demonic realm is massive. Wherever there's the demonic realm and demonic things, there's always sexual sacrifice and sexual things that are happening, deviants, all the time. So some have suggested that actually this, is, this was about the, 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 the kind of form of cultic prostitution that happened at pagan temples. However, the language used is not specific. Rather, it is general, a man lying with a woman, as with a woman. It's, there's no particular context mentioned for, to, for, to make that argument valid. Also, the surrounding verses in both Leviticus 18 and 20 forbid other forms of sexual sin that are general in nature, such as incest, adultery, and bestiality. Remember the other day I read them all, a whole bunch of weird sins. Don't marry your sister, don't, don't sleep with the donkey, don't do all these things. Don't, don't do that. Not good. Now, none of these things have any connection with pagan temples or idolatry, first of all. All the surrounding verses of those in that context. And these things are morally wrong, irrespective of who's doing them and where they are happening. They're just wrong. It's in that same list of things. Leviticus 20 verse 13 prohibits both male parties, both male parties equally. Meaning, it's not referring to gay rape or an unconsensual gay sex or for a forced relationship. That's often the, the argument is that what, it's, what, it's, um, what these uh, restrictions are, are, are talking about is pediatry. It's, it's where men have sex with boys, forced sex with boys. It's like rape. And men rape other men. They're saying that's what's detestable and abomination. But in Leviticus 20 verse 13, it says, If a man has sexual relations with a man as one does with a woman, both of them have done what is detestable. They're both to be put to death, it says. So that argument of it's only the cultic prostitution associated with the pagan temples is unfounded in my view. What about Romans chapter 1? This is a huge one. This is a massive text. And it uses hectic language. Let's have a look at Romans chapter 1. Verse 18. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and the wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness, since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. First point is this. The wrath of God has been revealed from heaven against all godlessness. All. Not just homosexual sin. All. And wickedness. All godlessness and wickedness. 
For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and His divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. Creation is a display of God. Verse 21, For although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God nor gave thanks to Him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Thinking became futile and their hearts became darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools. You see, the wisdom of God is greater than the wisdom, than the foolishness of man. In fact, the foolishness of God is greater than the wisdom of man, I think the, script, the text says. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools, and they exchanged. Listen to the word, look, listen out for the word exchanged. My glasses keep slipping down my nose. This is sweaty work, I just want to let you know. This is by no means my favorite subject to talk about. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools, and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal human being and birds, uh, look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged, so first of all, they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images. Now they exchange the truth about God for a lie. They try to make things God, human beings, animals, the creation. They, they try to make creation creator. And now they're exchanging truth for lies. And worshipped and served created things rather than the creator who is praised forever. Amen. Because of this, God gave them over. Second time it says God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their woman exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. And in the same way, men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. Furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind. There's this exchange that happens, and then there's this giving over that happens. There's an exchange in our own minds that happens where we take God off his throne and put something else there, but then there's a giving over that happens, which is a consequence of that exchange. I'll pick up on it now. So God gave them over to a depraved mind, so that they do what they ought not, so that they do what ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. I, I, I have to read this because it's not just homosexuality God's talking about here. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, gossips, talking badly of people behind their back. In the same list as homosexuality. Slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful, they invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents and they have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. Although they go and know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve the death, they not only continue to do these things but also approve of those who practice them. Big text. Big text on this subject. And what we see from there is that homosexuality is unnatural, according to Romans chapter 1. Remember, I'm not, I'm not making a moral judgment on anybody. I'm just telling you what the Bible says. Please hear that. Paul describes both lesbian and male homosexual behavior as unnatural. Friends, this is a massive thing for the Bible to say. And it's hard for people to hear. Some people in reading that have said this. They say unnatural might refer to what is unnatural to the people themselves. So it's not unnatural to God, it's unnatural to me. And so they say, so they're not condemning all homosexual behavior, 
but the only, only that which goes against a person's own sexual inclinations. In other words, a heterosexual person having gay sex. They're saying that's what's wrong. It's unnatural. However, natural and against nature is a way of talking about the way things in, crea in creation have been made, not our subjective feelings. When it talks about unnatural, when it talks about against nature, it's talking about the way God has created things. It's, a way that it's against the nature of creation as God created, not, a, not against my subjective experience. Paul said, basically, Paul is saying homosexual behavior contradicts God's purpose revealed to us in creation. That's what that text is saying. That's why, friends, it's not true to say for people that struggle with same-sex attraction, but God made me this way. Very tender things to say. You see, our nature has been twisted by sin. What is natural has been twisted by sin. Our, our desires are warped as a result of our fallen nature, according to this text. And obviously the reference to lesbianism and homosexual sin refutes the argument that it's just the man-boy relationships. He's saying it's all unnatural. Can I remind you again, very NB, NB, NB. The strength of Paul's language should not make us think that homosexual conduct is the worst or only form of sinful behavior. I'm going to say that a lot tonight. This is the context in which he's speaking to in Rome where emperors are doing this and everybody's doing it. So he's using strong language to address them. This passage is illustrative for all of us, friends. As we reject God, we find ourselves craving what we don't nat what we're not naturally designed to crave. And that will be sex outside of marriage, pornography, and all the sexual sin, and all kinds of other sin. When we reject God, that's where we go. And this is true of a heterosexual person and a homosexual person. The second thing that this text talks about that we read in Romans 1 is that homosexuality is one of the signs of God's judgment. What do I mean by that? Romans 1 verse 18, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and wickedness. The present day judgment against sin is God giving us what we want. What is God's judgment right now? Giving you what you want. Giving in to your cravings. Saying you want it, do it, take it. It's the worst thing that can happen to us, friends. And we think we're getting away with it but actually God's giving us over to it. When we ask for a reality without him, he gives us a taste of it. In each case, the giving over, remember I said it three times it says giving over, giving over. In each case, the giving over results in an intensification of the sin and a further breakdown of human behavior. And so it just gets worse and worse and worse. That's what Romans 1 is talking about. That's the world in which we live that needs Jesus so desperately. Romans 1.24, therefore God gave them over to the sinful desires of their heart. Romans 1.26, God gave them over to shameful lusts. 1.28, God gave them over to a depraved mind. Sin leads to judgment, but judgment leads to further sin. Because God gives us over to it. We need Jesus to interrupt the cycle and set us free from this continual lust for more sin. So. 
What about 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9 to 10? Or 11, actually. Well, do you not know that wrongdoers will inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, or, or adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, or the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, or swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Notice the list again. Drunkards. Same list as homosexuals. If the church would deal with all of that sin, and at the same measure of intensity, maybe this debate wouldn't be where we are now. We would call up the people that are drinking too much, and we'd call up the greedy, and we'd call up the idolaters, and anyway, not call up, but you know what I mean, address them and, and help them. Paul is describing different kinds of people who, unless they repent, will be excluded from the kingdom of God. In verse 11, let me just finish reading that. In verse 11, okay, I'll, go, I'll get to it now. In this text, the, the, the NRV says, nor men who have sex with men. It's important to know this is one of those texts. You kind of need to ring this in your Bible if, you, if you're wanting to know more about this. The ESV says, nor men who practice homosexuality. The 1984 NRV says, male prostitutes nor homosexual offenders. It uses two words. What the other translations do is they kind of pull them together and make them one entity. But it's actually two words that are used there for homosexual behavior. In the NASB, the New American Standard, which is a very, very literal translation of the Bible, very difficult to read actually because it's so literal, doesn't flow. It says, nor the effeminate, nor the homosexual. And those two words, are. this is important to know, Two words in the New Testament for homosexuality. One is malakoi, literally meaning those that are soft. In classical literature, it could be in classical literature, it could be literature, it could be used as a pejorative term for men who were effeminate, for the younger passive past partner in a pederistic man-boy relationship. So it's the, the softer version. There would be a man and the boy. The, the boy would be called the malakoi. Or to refer to male prostitutes as well, which is why the NIV, used, the NIV 1984 uses it. In 1 Corinthians 6, malakoi comes in a list describing general sexual sin. So the context suggests it's most likely using it in the broad way to refer to the passive partners in homosexual intercourse. That's why it's not pedestry that it's talking about. Men with boys. And by the way, just so you know, throughout the literature, when you read the literature, it's all over the literature. That was common practice in those days. Common practice. Especially among, among the elites, like it is today. There's another word, not malakoi, it's called arsenicota. It's a compound of male arson and intercourse coitus, meaning bed. So the, it means to bed a male. And in the, in the Septuagint, which is the, the Greek version of the Old Testament in Leviticus 18 and 19, it uses those two words next to each other. So Paul has kind of pulled them together and made this word arsenicota. And arsenicota then is a general term for same-sex and is pairing with Malakoi, and its pairing with Malakoi indicates that Paul is addressing both the active and passive partners in the homosexual relationship, homosexual sex. Important to know. I said I was going to nerd you out. Friends, if we don't get the scriptures right, and you don't understand this is what the Word of God says, we'll never be bold enough and courageous enough to work and to work through these things in our own lives and in the lives of our friends and family that are around us. Homosexual sin is serious, friends. Although homosexuality is not the ultimate sin, it is serious sin. Remember, sexual sin is sin that you commit against your own body. We spoke about that. 
It has huge implications. But the amazing thing about this text, homosexuality is not the inescapable sin. You can get free from it. Because this is what it says in, in verse 11 of 1 Corinthians 9. It talks about, gives you the whole list, greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were, implying that you're no longer that. And that's what some of you were. But you were washed and you were sanctified and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of our God. Homosexuality is serious and homosexuality is not the ultimate sin and homosexuality is not the inescapable sin. It is possible for someone living in a practicing gay lifestyle to be made new by God. It doesn't mean all temptations will go away. Just like you can get married in a heterosexual relationship and your temptations for sex outside of marriage doesn't go away. And Paul is warning his readers not to revert to their former way of life here. means that there seems to be some desire to. So there is going to be temptation. But God can. It's not how you still are. It's not who, that's who some of you were, not what you are now. 1 Timothy has another text. I'm not going to go through it. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8 to 11. Again, it's the text, it's the, it's the word asanakoita. It's a catch term for all forms of homosexual sin. And all these, and it says there, it says, um, verse 10, it talks about the law being for those that are ungodly, for the sexually immoral, for those practicing homosexuality, for slave traders and liars and perjurers, and for, and for whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine that conforms to the gospel concerning the glory of the blessed God in which he entrusted me. So it's basically saying all these practices contradict sound doctrine and the gospel that do not conform to the Christian to the life Christians are called to lead and they go against the grain of the new identity we have in Christ. just want to quickly get past that now. As I said earlier, these scriptures will be very hard for some of us to know, read. In each instance, the Bible directly addresses homosexual behavior. Every time it addresses it, it condemns it. The consistent teaching of the Bible is clear. God forbids, forbids homosexual activity. Given that what the Bible says about God's purpose of sex and marriage, this should not surprise us at all. When we understand the Genesis 2, 1 and 2, this should not surprise us that God would condemn this because of the oneness that comes in diversity, husband and wife, Jesus and the church, Father, Son and Holy Spirit that God puts together. For those that experience homosexual feelings or for those that are close to people who do these teachings in the Bible can be very, very hard indeed. And it is particularly hard for this group of people. For those that are Christian and experiencing um, same-sex attraction. What does it mean for us? Do these feelings write us off as Christians? The answer is no. The answer is no. To experience same-sex attraction as a believer but not act on it is not sinful. Temptation is not sin. Sin is action. Let me explain. Is it sinful to experience same-sex attraction? Obviously, same-sex attraction is not a good thing. Just as greed is not a good thing. It is along with many other things, the consequences of the fall. It did not exist before the fall in Genesis 3 and it will not exist in new creation. Important to understand, it did not exist before the fall and it will not exist in heaven. This kind of attraction is not something God designed us for. It contradicts His design. We cannot blame temptation on anyone else, and certainly not God. 
homosexual temptations reflect our own fallenness in the same way as all sin reflects our own fallenness. It's not unchristian to experience same-sex attraction any more than it is unchristian to sin in some other way. What marks us out as Christian is not that we, are, that we never experience such things, but how we respond to them when we do. Just like we do for all other sin. Matthew chapter 6, verse 12 to 13 says this. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. The Lord's Prayer. We seek forgiveness from sin and deliverance from temptation. We seek forgiveness from sin and deliverance from temptation. We're not asked to seek forgiveness for being tempted, but only for any sin committed when we succumb to it. Very important, this. Instead, we are called to stand up under temptation to endure it faithfully. We fight to honor God, trusting that He is faithful and will not allow us to be tempted beyond what we can bear. Temptation is not sin. Desire is not sin. Sin is when you act on the desire. You give over to the desire. When desire becomes God. So what about a Christian who experiences same-sex attraction? How should they respond to this? It's good for you to know this. Whether you do experience this or not. Same-sex attraction does not disqualify you. I know it's tough, and from what I've read, and there's a great book by a man, his name is Sam Allenby, who struggles with same-sex attraction, and he writes a book on, is, is God anti-gay? Great little book, 83 pages, and it kind of summarizes this content without diminishing the good scriptural work behind it. It's just a beautiful little book. Does not disqualify you. The reason why it doesn't qualify you, disqualify you, is that in Christ we are presented holy and blameless in God's sight. Just like we are for any other sin. The difficulty, I suppose, is that in heterosexual forms of sin, at least you're being tempted by a form of sexual expression that you were designed for. And the wrestle with people that have got same-sex attraction is absolutely horrible. They do not define you, so they do not disqualify you. It also does not define you. We live in a culture where sexuality is equated with identity. You are not your sexuality. You are a son or a daughter of God. You are not defined by your sexuality. What about Christians that experience same-sex attraction? That don't, doesn't disqualify you, doesn't define you. These groups of people need support from the community. So we need a culture in the church where can, people can come and speak to us about anything. And we don't. And because you see, shame thrives in secrecy, silence, and judgment. Honor thrives in confession, vulnerability, and grace. Some ask this question about same-sex marriages, etc. They say, surely some same-sex partnership is okay as long as it's committed and faithful. That's one of the things. But surely, Stan, I'm not talking about sleeping around. I'm talking about fidelity. I'm talking about a commitment, a faithful commitment of a man to a man or a woman to a woman. 
promiscuous gay lifestyle with multiple partners and one night stands might be wrong, but two people who love each other and are faithful, surely that's okay. Shouldn't faithfulness within a relationship be what determines the moral goodness, not the gender of those involved? Is the common question. In 1 Corinthians 5, it's a brilliant example of how that falls short. In 1 Corinthians 5, Paul talks about a man who's sleeping with his father's wife. Now, Leviticus absolutely says that's not right. You don't sleep with your mother or your stepmother. You don't sleep with your father's wife. It's expressly forbidden. And when he responds to them, he says, how can you put up with this? This man should rather be asked to leave the community. There's no question about whether this particular couple love each other or not. I'm sleeping with my father's wife, but, we, but it's okay because we love each other and we're in a committed relationship doesn't even come into the question. It's just wrong, according to Paul and Leviticus. Paul does not ask about their level of commitment or whether they're being faithful. Whether or not they're in a long-term committed relationship is besides the point. The fact remains that it's wrong and should not be happening, is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. In many areas of life, it's actually possible to demonstrate good qualities while doing something wrong. Gangs that go around murdering people, but there's such loyalty between the gang members. There's love there. Doesn't make any difference. They're doing something wrong. One of the other arguments is, but Jesus never mentions homosexuality, so how wrong can it be? Jesus never mentions the words. So one of the arguments is, Jesus doesn't say it, so how wrong can it be? What's wrong with it then? In Mark chapter 7, verse 20, Jesus says this, What comes out of a person is what defiles them. For it, is, for it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evil come from inside and defile a person. They come from inside of us. They don't come from outside of us. It comes from our hearts. Sexual immorality there, it's the word porneo, which translates the word um, which we would get the word pornography from. We've said it before. It's something of a, it's a catch term of all sexual activity outside of marriage. All illegitimate sexual activity outside of marriage comes under that heading. And it extends beyond intercourse to include activity, or any activity of a sexual nature, of a sexual nature, sorry. And friends, none of Jesus' followers would have thought, no, that doesn't include homosexuality. There was a strong effort of no homosexuality in the Jewish culture. So Jesus does, does say it, but kind of indirectly. But I need to say this. In Matthew 19 that text that we read earlier, which I'm going to read again, Jesus indicates, Jesus, as well as condemning sexual sin outside of marriage, Jesus indicated that the only godly alternative to marriage was celibacy. This is a hard thing to say. Matthew 19, verse 8, let me read it again. What we're saying has got to be rooted in the Scriptures in the Creator's words, in the Creator's heart. Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard, but it is not this way from the beginning. It was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality, marries another woman, commits adultery. It is better not, the disciple said to him, if this is the situation between a husband and wife, it's better not to marry. So saying, if you get divorced and you marry somebody else, that's the same as committing adultery. And they're saying, hey, this is a hard thing to, to say, Jesus. This is a very difficult thing. To, it's actually better not just not to get married then. 
Jesus replied, not everyone can accept this word. Jesus says, yeah, you're right, but not everybody can accept this word. But only those to whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs. Eunuchs were those that were single, weren't going to get married. For there are eunuchs that were born that way. They could not have sex with a woman. There are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by others. They've been castrated. And there are those who choose to live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. So what happens is Jesus only gives two options. They balk at the seriousness of the commitment of marriage under the words of Jesus, and he gives them two options. You either get married or you remain single and celibate. You either get married a man to a woman, one man, one woman, or you remain single and celibate. That's the options that Jesus gives. There's no third possibility of a homosexual partnership or a heterosexual unmarried partnership. The godly alternatives before us, heterosexual marriage or celibacy. But can we really expect a Christian of the same, with same-sex attraction to remain single? It's a hard word, friends. It is possible for some Christians with same-sex attraction to get married to a woman. Somebody of the opposite sex. They may struggle with their homosexual temptation and desires at times, but somehow they found a deep companionship and sufficient sexual chemistry in a heterosexual marriage. So some that will struggle with sexual same-sex attraction, that will actually get married and have a have a fulfilled married life, have kids, but still wrestle with some of these things. But what about the brother or sister for whom marriage is unrealistic, like that, this guy that wrote this book? They can't bring themselves to marry a woman because they're sexually attracted to men. What do they do? How do they do this? How do they figure this out? Is singleness required? And is singleness realistic? Yes and yes. Very difficult. For the sake of the kingdom, some have chosen to become eunuchs. For the sake of representing God in the kingdom, for the sake of re representing Christ in the church, chosen a lifestyle of singleness. That's why, friends, more than ever, the church needs a healthy picture of singleness. A healthy picture of single life. We forget that Jesus was single. Paul speaks about singleness as a gift from God. Our Bible is very positive about singleness. And Tyler Page's talk on singleness was absolutely brilliant. For those that missed it, get it on the... That's why we put this in there. Because unless we've got a healthy perspective of singleness, what about the same-sex attracted people in our church that have to remain single? How are they going to live a fulfilled life if they don't understand that you can live a fulfilled life as a single person? Jesus himself was single he was the most, and he was the most fully human and complete, and complete person that ever lived. His singleness was in no way diminished his humanity. He was not less of a person for not being married. Nobody is, which Tyler Page told us. Marriage for all its best and blessings is not intrinsic to being whole and fully realized as a human being. Singleness has its advantages, and singleness can also provide other particular opportunities. We see this in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. I haven't got time to, do, to get into this. We've got to have a high view of singleness, more than ever in the church. 
We've got to build a culture where people can come and talk about their sexuality without feeling judged. And it rippling through the church. Ah, you won't believe it. He's gay. He likes men more than he likes women. So hard to come and talk about these sins. Talk about these sins and desires. So proud of a man. A couple of weeks ago. had a coffee with him and he said, Stan, I'm battling with this. I thought, thank you, Jesus, you can talk to me about this. You can help him. Jesus can help him. It will thrive and silence secrecy and judgment. Shame will thrive in that, but it cannot stand being shared. As a church, we've got to make it easier to talk about, which means we've got to watch our jokes. All boys' schools, jokes flying around. I'll stop acting gay. For a gay person or somebody that is struggling with same-sex attraction, that's hugely difficult. As a church, we've got to honor singleness. As a church, we've got to remember that we're a family. And if one of your kids... You can have all the theories in the world about how to deal with this until one of your kids is gay. Then what do you do? Because you're not going to stop loving them. What are you going to do? How are we going to deal with that? Kindness. Before they, before they encounter the word, word of God, they need to encounter the love and the kindness of Jesus through you and me. We've also got to deal with biblical models of masculinity and femininity rather than the cultural stereotypes. That to be male, you've got to have a knife between your teeth and a bomb in your hand and da -da 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 -da, Rambo. You can be that guy and be an absolute little wuss. This is a tough topic. I've said a lot of stuff and a lot of scripture and half of it's just gone in one ear and out the other. But at least we've got it out there. 